Well, a real thank you to Anna and Trevor and Angie and Ryan um, for leading us into the very presence of God. This morning, as you can see, we're working on beginning on John chapter 18 in our series going through the gospel. And uh, this morning we find ourselves on holy ground. Before we read together, let's pray. Father, we come before you. We come in awe, in wonder. We come looking for you to speak to us. That you would open our ears to truly hear your word to us. Help us, Father. Help us to hear Your Word and only Your Word. Grant, Lord, that I also may speak only Your Word. That the name of Jesus might be exalted in our midst and that others might also come to see and to appreciate the beauty of our Lord and the salvation that You have prepared and provided for all who will come. Thank You, Father. Thank You for Your incredible grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of us are learning to see with different eyes. And uh, I can see you well just that I can't see my notes. <laughs> and I can't read the Scriptures especially. The print is a little bit too fine. So pardon me if I kind of peer over my cheaters. John 18 and verse 1. And if you're using the Brown Pew Bible, uh, you'll find this on page 1681. The last, uh, by the way, the last few weeks we've been uh, looking at Jesus' um, talk with his disciples in the upper room, and we've skipped over um, the chapter 17, which is uh, commonly referred to as his high priestly prayer. Uh, we'll come back to that in a few weeks, but for now. We're on chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. When Jesus... Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, 
I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter also followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The passage we have before us breaks into, I think, four scenes. So, scene one. The hour had grown late as Jesus and his disciples talked after supper. It was perhaps midnight when they crossed the Kidron Valley to the east of the city. That they would be heading for Gethsemane was not something out of the ordinary because especially on the eve of Passover, Jerusalem was packed and they couldn't stay within the city walls. But Jesus had been given permission to enter this particular garden with his closest friends and they met there frequently when they were in the area. Now the authorities had made several attempts to silence Jesus in the preceding weeks and months, but he had thwarted them every time because... As he put it, uh, my time has not yet fully come. But now his hour had come. And Jesus was fully in charge. He was in control. And he was forcing his adversaries to act in a way that was contrary to their plan. He had carefully arranged for the place where he and his disciples would eat the Passover and no one but Peter and John knew the location in advance. But once they had gathered in the upper room for the Passover celebration, Jesus took Judas by surprise. Because first he indicated that he knew that one of the twelve would betray him. And when he was pressed by John to tell him who this disciple was, 
Jesus identified Judas by passing him the bread. Matthew records that Judas asked Jesus if perhaps the betrayer was him, hoping no doubt that Jesus would indicate otherwise. And then Jesus informed Judas and John that it was indeed he who was the betrayer. Now, can you imagine the panic that Judas must have experienced at that moment? Judas had hoped to find an occasion to betray Jesus secretly, and not during the feast. He had intended to keep his dealings with the Jewish uh, religious leaders a secret because he wanted to arrange for our Lord's arrest in a way that would catch Jesus and the eleven off guard. But when Jesus identified Judas as the betrayer, this traitor was certain that all the disciples would soon know this as well. And when this happened, his opportunity to hand Jesus over would be gone. When Jesus gave Judas a reason to leave, I can almost see him bolting for the door. He couldn't get out of there fast enough. He had been discovered. His window of opportunity was now exceedingly small. Whether the Jewish religious leaders liked it or not, the only time Judas would be able to hand Jesus over to them was during the next few hours of that night in the middle of the Passover celebration. So Jesus went to the Mount of Olives specifically to the garden called Gethsemane, for a variety of reasons. Not only was there no place in the city to sleep, but he needed a secluded place where he could pour out his heart before the Father. He deliberately chose a place that Judas would know. Jesus chose to walk toward his purpose with both eyes open. And in addition, the political situation in Jerusalem was tense. The city was teeming with pilgrims, a lot of whom had fervently hailed Jesus as the Messiah only a few days before. His arrest, his public arrest, could have sparked an insurrection by these passionately nationalistic crowds. That is exactly what the Jewish leaders feared would happen, which is why they had uh, plotted together to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Specifically, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. But then, neither did Jesus want to be a catalyst for a revolt of the populace, since he had not come as a military conqueror seeking to overthrow the Romans. He came with a very different mission, to die as a sacrifice for sin. Besides, if such a revolt had taken place, his disciples may well have been killed in the confusion, and the Lord wanted to protect them. John doesn't tell us about Jesus' own praying and agony in the garden. 
He doesn't tell us about how sleepy the disciples were. He doesn't tell us about the kiss by which Judas identified Jesus. John presupposes that we have already read the other Gospels. I mean, they were in circulation 20 years earlier. He has his own agenda, his own purpose in writing. He intends to show Jesus as the Messiah so that we will believe, so that we will trust Jesus and that we'll come to know eternal life in Him. John also telescopes the time sequence. If you, if you just look at this, this first few verses, Jesus went out with His disciples across the Kidron Valley and entered a garden. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers, uh, went there with lanterns and and, uh, torches and weapons. There's no time lapse. It seems to happen. Bang, bang, bang. But we know from the other Gospels that Jesus and the others had to have been there at least an hour, maybe two, before Judas showed up. But it was quite a mob that showed up. The Jewish authorities clearly had no idea of who Jesus really is. And they expected that he and the disciples would either run or put up resistance. So in addition to the temple police, they brought with them a band of Roman soldiers. Now this word is interesting. Um, It's a a spira. S-P-E-I-R-A. Normally a spira was 600 soldiers. Depending on context, it could be as many as a thousand. Occasionally, the term is used of a smaller group of about 200. So even if John intended the smaller group, there's something like 250 guys here came to arrest Jesus. And with their torches and lanterns and weapons, they couldn't sneak up on him. One commentator noted that the approaching army could easily have been seen by Jesus quite a while before they arrived so that he and the disciples had plenty of time to run and hide, had they chosen. But Jesus didn't hide. Verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? I picture Jesus coming to the garden gate to greet the officers and soldiers standing there much like the guardian of the sheep pen. Remember John 10? Jesus said, Truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. 
And then, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So, here, Jesus is very much, almost literally, the guardian of the sheep, of his disciples. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And he said, They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you, I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Don't let anyone tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. Here in the strongest possible language, He identifies himself with the God who appeared to Moses at the burning bush. And those who were there that night caught his intent. We discussed this when we were looking at John chapter 8, back in October, where we found that most modern translations have trouble translating this. I'm not quite sure why. But anyway. Um, the problem is that whatever we do, it, it doesn't work in English. It doesn't really work. I mean, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, any grammar teacher will tell you that's poor, poor grammar. But then it's awkward in Greek. It's awkward in Aramaic. It's awkward in Hebrew. It doesn't matter. Um... Jesus said just those two words. When the mob indicated they were looking for Jesus of Nazareth, he said, I am. And the response would be comical if it weren't so tragic. What is the proper response to being in the revealed presence of the living God? In most examples in the Bible, the response is prostration. You fall on your face before Him. And here, when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, picture this. You've got the temple police. You've got 200 or 600 Roman soldiers trying to regain their composure after falling to the ground. But once the mob had managed to get back on their feet, Jesus asked them again, Whom do you seek? And he said, they said, Jesus of Nazareth, and he answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. Here Jesus is conducting himself just 
like the good shepherd he had declared himself to be. And he presents himself as the substitute for his disciples. He's laying down his life for the sheep. Scene 2. Now the focus of John's narrative switches briefly to Peter. Peter. We know him, the impulsive one, who has a tendency to speak first and think later. And as we see here, to act first and think later. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Try to put yourself in this scene. Jesus and his eleven disciples on one side Judas and something like 250 trained soldiers on the other. Jesus has just negotiated freedom for the eleven. When Peter comes from behind, draws his sword, and swings at the closest person on the other side. This person just happened to be the high priest's servant. But Peter was not a trained swordsman and may have been left-handed, and he swung wildly. He may have intended to split this guy from stem to stern, but the only damage he succeeded in doing was to cut off the right ear of Malchus. But think about how volatile this situation was. Peter's action was very much like striking a match in a room that's filled with gasoline vapor. Had not Jesus responded with grace immediately, His disciples could easily have become just another group of corpses, just another bunch of dead rebels with whom Rome had dealt. John doesn't record What Luke tells us about the incident, how Jesus diffused the situation by healing Malchus on the spot. Again, he supposes that we have already read the other Gospel accounts and his focus is elsewhere. On Jesus' statement, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Again, we see the resolve of Jesus and His humility. He had wrestled the issue to the ground and was clear about His mission. He had prayed, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. And now Jesus was prepared to complete His eternal work. But what did Jesus mean when He spoke of a cup? In the Old Testament, the reference to a cup may mean several things. I mean, it's referred to as a cup of salvation. It's a cup of uh, comfort. 
most frequently, when you check your search engine, uh, most frequently it refers to the cup of the wrath of the condemnation of God. Speaks of the perfectly just response of our righteous God to our sin and rebellion. He cannot let our self-centeredness, our murders, thefts, lusts, and adulteries go unanswered. He must answer. And answer He did in Jesus. So now Jesus is prepared to drink the cup the Father has given Him. The cup of God's righteous judgment on my sin and yours. And when Jesus surrendered to arrest by the authorities, He was demonstrating His surrender to the Father's eternal will and plan. A side note here. Did you notice that only John records the name of the high priest's servant? Why? What possible importance could that bit of information have had? Maybe while when John was writing his gospel, Malchus was still around. So people could go and ask him what happened that night. Now, I suspect that Malchus became a Christian and that John and many of John's first readers knew him. But there has never been a document discovered that records the activities of this man apart from the Gospel records. This is all we know about him. One writer put it this way, Most of the followers of Jesus down through the centuries go unremembered. There's no record of their names. Perhaps that momentary glimpse of a dramatic encounter in the life of Malchus is a reminder that none go unnoticed in the big story. That our own encounters with God matter regardless of whether others ever hear our names or not. Our commitment to Jesus as followers and believers matters to God. And even those on the sidelines may have a role to play in the Jesus story. Scene 3. Verse 12. The band of soldiers and their captain and officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Here we have echoes of corruption, and political intrigue. Under the Old Testament law, read Leviticus. 
Under the Old Testament law, the high priest was supposed to be selected from the descendants of Aaron. And he was to hold that office for life. But under Roman rule, the high priestly office went to the person who had the most to offer. Uh, to offer to Rome, that is. And whether that was money in the form of bribes, or political influences, or both, didn't really much matter. And certainly the person's faith was completely immaterial. Because of the potential benefit to Rome, the office rotated frequently so that only the wealthiest and most politically astute families could ever participate, whether or not they were Aaron's descendants. Apparently, Annas and four of his sons had occupied the office of high priest, and now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was high priest, while Annas himself retained the power behind the office. Now, if you stop and think about it, so this is six people who have now occupied the high priestly office from the same family. That would have represented a huge financial burden. So clearly the family was well off. <clears throat> in fact, it seems that Annas controlled the market in the temple. You know, the market that Jesus had thrown out? Jesus had hit Annas where it hurt. In his wallet. So not surprisingly, Annas wanted to be the first to gloat over the arrest, the defeat, and the execution of this disturbing Galilean. We'll explore the events in the home of Annas next week, but for now, we're on for scene four. Verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was, all, was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Let's not be too hard on Peter. His heart was definitely in the right place. And while nine disciples ran away, Peter and at least one other followed Jesus and the arresting mob across the Kidron Valley into and through the streets of Jerusalem right to the home of Annas. Now we don't know who this other disciple was. Conjecture has included the names of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who were both... Um, 
members of the Sanhedrin and who could well have been there that night, as well as Lazarus and John himself. But the strongest tradition is that this unnamed disciple was John. Of course, that also raises questions of why was John known to the high priest? And again, we can only guess. So, whatever, for whatever reason, John, or this other disciple, was known to the high priest. And he went back to the gate and spoke for Peter. Now, apparently security was pretty loose, and Peter was admitted. But think of what Peter alone had done. He was the only one to draw a sword to defend his Lord. And here he was in the very courtyard of the one man who could condemn or even pardon Jesus. Peter was a man of extreme courage. So the first thing to remember about Peter is not his failure, but his courage that was born out of his love for Jesus. That courage kept him close to his Lord when everyone else had run away. He failed not because he was a coward, but because he was one very brave man. We need to remember how much Peter loved Jesus. Only his love stood the test. The others had abandoned Jesus. Peter alone stood by him. Peter loved Jesus so much that he could not leave him. His failure was one that could only happen because of his faithful love for Jesus. It was the real Peter who protested his loyalty in the upper room when he said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. It was the real Peter who drew his sword in the moonlit garden to defend his Lord. It was the real Peter who followed him into the courtyard of Annas because he could not leave his Lord alone but it was not the real Peter who cracked under the tension and denied that he knew Jesus. And that is what Jesus could see. That is why Jesus later sought Peter out to assure him of his redemption and forgiveness. So what will we make of this story? Well, Jesus is the Good Shepherd. He laid down His life for you and for me. But there's no benefit to us if we are not willing to submit to His shepherding. As long as I insist on doing it my way, on going my way, I cannot receive His grace and His forgiveness or His protection if today you are one of His wayward sheep. 
know for a certainty that Jesus is chasing after you and that He will not stop until you stop running away from Him. For your eternal benefit, just stop where you are and turn around to face Jesus. Jesus humbly submitted to the Father and as a result is now highly exalted, having been given the name that is above every name in heaven and on earth. He has accomplished for us what we could not even have dreamt was possible. Jesus totally drained the cup of the just condemnation of God on my sinfulness. He took my sinfulness on Himself. He carried it to the grave. He did the same for you. And because of that, as Paul put it, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of the faithful, humble grace Jesus showed when He went to the cross, you and I can be cleansed, forgiven, healed, set free, Have you received it? There's no time like now. Maybe you are a Malchus or a John Harborenko. You say, who? To judge from the silence from the first century, Malchus, like most Christians, lived out his life without apparently making much of a public splash. Apparently he never became a church leader, nor a politician. He was not a writer of important documents, at least not documents that carried his name. But he had an important part to play nonetheless. And I would really like to hear his first-hand testimony of his encounter with Jesus that night. Don't bottle up your story. Let us hear how you encountered the Good Shepherd. How He found you. How He has changed your life. By the way, John Harborenko was used by the Lord to introduce our beloved Chester Donaldson to his Savior. And how many of us have been influenced by Chester? Another question, and only you can answer this. Have you failed in your attempt to be faithful to the Lord Jesus? Have you, like Peter, ever found yourself out of your depth, stretched to the breaking point, and then snapped? Do not be afraid. You have not committed the unforgivable sin. Jesus knows the real you. He knows what you tried and why. And as He was with Peter, He offers you His forgiveness and many more opportunities for you to serve Him. All you need to do 
is to allow Jesus to embrace you. Father, we do thank you for the for that incredible gift that you have given for the sacrifice of Jesus in our place. Father, we thank you that he did take the cup that you gave him, the cup of our judgment, the cup of the wrath that was your judgment on our sin. Lord, we thank You also for the cleansing, the forgiveness, the freedom that we have in Jesus. Father, we ask that You would walk with us. Help us to, to fulfill Your purpose. And when You take us into places where Our strength fails. Lord, by Your Spirit, move in us, through us. Help us, Lord, so that we will not fail You. We'll stand with You to glorify the name of Jesus. Thank You, Father, for all these things in His precious name. Amen.